Bibles to the Gospel according to Luke, to Luke chapter 10. I'm going to start reading at verse 25. It's page 869 in the blue Bible in front of you there. Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. And behold, the lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal, most likely a donkey, set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, two days' wages, and he gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever you, more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer said, the one who showed, himself mercy, showed, him, showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So now we continue with our series in First and Second Chronicles, Reclaim, Revive, Reform, Return. We're looking at chapter Second Chronicles 27 and then 28. The two go together. It's page 378 in that blue Bible. You have again a father, chapter 27, and a son, chapter 28. A little bit different, you have a godly father, chapter 27, and a godless son, chapter 28. And so Jotham's reign, chapter 27, is a very short reign and it receives God's acclamation. Verse 2, and he did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. All capitals means just reminding you that in the Hebrew, this is God's personal name, Yahweh. He did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh according to all that his father Isaiah had done, except he did not enter the temple of Yahweh, the Lord. But the people, but the people still followed corrupt practices. And again, that acclamation comes at the end of, towards the end of his life in verse 6. So Jotham became mighty because he ordered his ways before Yahweh, before the Lord his God. And then Jotham is gone. And his son now, Ahaz, reigns. And Ahaz was 20 years old. He reigned for 16 years. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of the Lord, of Yahweh, as his father David had done. But he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. He even made metal images for the Baals. And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hanam and burned his sons as an offering according 
to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord, whom Yahweh had driven out, drove out before the people of Israel. And he sacrificed and he made offerings on the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. And so then verse 5, Therefore Yahweh, the Lord his God, gave him into the hand of the king of Syria, who defeated him and took captive many people. And then verse, the rest of verse 5, he was also give, given into the hand of the king of Israel, who struck him with great force. He lost 120 uh, members of his fighting unit in one day. And so then verse, end of verse 6, and why is that? Because they had forsaken Yahweh, the God of their fathers. And then there's an episode, an example, which we'll look at at the end of the sermon. There's an example of how this defeat, what it looked like, verses 8 through 15. But things just continue to get worse. Ahaz is a very terrible king. Defeated on the right hand, defeated on the left. Edomites, Philistines, all over the place. Verse 19, And the Lord, Yahweh, humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to the Lord, to Yahweh. And so Tiglath-Pilitzer, king of Assyria, came against him and infl- afflicted him instead of strengthening him. For Ahaz took a portion from the house of the Lord, uh, the house of Yahweh, and the house of the king and of the princes, and gave tribute to the king of Assyria, but it did not help him. In the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to Yahweh, this same King Ahaz. He even ends up doing a little quid pro quo, my this for your that. He wants to start worshiping the Syrian gods because he's been defeated by the Syrians, so maybe he can capture some of that power. And he shuts down the temple. I have nothing to do with Yahweh. Shut the doors. And then on top of that, in every city, verse 25, in every city of Judah, he made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking to anger Yahweh, the God of his fathers. And then he died. And he died as a man who had no honor, who lived with no honor, and received no honor in his death. They did not bring him into the tombs of the kings of Israel. My friends, what I've read to you from the gospel according to Luke, and what I've read to you and summarized for you in 2 Chronicles 27 and 28, it is the rigorous word of the Lord, but it is also the restorative word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Oh, may we have ears to hear what the Spirit says to the church. And may we increasingly order our ways before you. Amen. You may be seated. So there's sermon notes on the back of the worship guide and questions. I just finished a book called Hell's Highway. It was written by a soldier who served in that operation, George Koskamaki, where he was chronicling how things unfolded with Operation Market Garden. Operation Market Garden was the military operation from September to November of 1944. I feel like this is a good introduction, seeing how it's Veterans Day Sunday, so I thought this was really good. And so it chronicles the whole operation that liberated Holland, but it also lays out that the costs were extensive. Most of the 101st Airborne and 82nd Airborne units lost more soldiers in that operation than they did in Normandy on D-Day. But in all the brutality and all of the bloodshed, there were moments of unlooked-for surprises. There's several of them in the story as he's, as he's bringing out all this first-person details. 
There's several of these surprising moments, but here's one just as an example. Sergeant Charles Weiss was terribly wounded in the midst of combat, and there's bombs, artillery going off everywhere, bullets flying everywhere. So he's terribly wounded. He was brought to a frontline aid station. A frontline aid station is not like MASH 4077. Those of you who remember those, movies, those shows, right? That was actually further back. These are right there, bullets flying, bombs blasting all around them, right? So this is a frontline aid station. So Sergeant Weiss, terribly wounded, is brought to this frontline aid station. And he was laid down next to his friend, Corporal Don Patton who had also been terribly wounded. Now because it was a frontline aid station, it means then that while this was going on, it was right in the middle of an artillery barrage where, quote, shrapnel, that's pieces of metal that from the explosion, shrapnel was flying through the windows and the doors. It was a bloodbath inside that frontline aid station. It was said that there were more dead men carried out than there were wounded and living being brought in. And so Corporal Patton at that moment, as Sergeant Weiss recounts, Corporal Patton looks at Sergeant Weiss's friend. He says, give me your hand. And Sergeant Weiss recounts, quote, he clasped my hand and started praying aloud It seemed like immediately the war stopped. We were not getting shelled. Even the medics stopped attending to the wounded and and started listening to the prayer and listening to the silence. It was a very stirring moment in my life, he says. But as soon as Patton stopped praying, the shrapnel came in again and even mortally wounded the only attending physician in the frontline aid station. But notice it was a surprising situation and it made it stand out for all the rest of Sergeant Weiss's days and his memory. Well, my friends, there are surprising moments, something like that, in these, uh, a surprising moment like that in these two historical events. It's really when we get to chapter 28, verses 8 through 15, but I'll get there in a minute. But I want to prepare you for a surprise. It is a surprising moment. But first, before we get there, we need to meet Jotham and his uncomplicated faithfulness. Chapter 27, Jotham and his uncomplicated faithfulness. Jotham's tell is short and it is quick because it's uncomplicated. It's 16 years and seven verses. But it's uncomplicated. So verse 2 tells you, And he did what was right in the eyes of Yahweh according to all that his father Uzziah had done. And if you remember last week's sermon, once you read that phrase, you stop and you go, hmm, Uzziah didn't always do what was right. That's part of the point. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord like his daddy Uzziah had done. Now comes the qualification. Except he did not enter the temple of the Lord of Yahweh. And so in other words, he's telling you, Jotham did and lived out and followed the example of the earlier days of his father Uzziah, those days when Uzziah did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and set himself to seek God in the days of Zechariah and as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. He followed that part of his daddy's life. The early days. He He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord like his daddy, but he didn't let pride 
conquer him and waltz into the temple and so forth. So then verse 3 and 4, he quietly builds the southern realm of God's kingdom, builds it up, fortifies it, probably bringing economic growth there as well, but it's a military buildup. And then he takes, takes on, successfully takes on the aggressive enemies of God's kingdom. Verse 5, what you have in Jotham is a very uncomplicated, fairly subtle and kind of quiet and peaceful embodiment of the 2020 principle. Second Chronicles 2020, glasses are on, believe in the Lord your God and you will be established. Believe as prophets and you will succeed. You have in Jotham a very simple, uncomplicated embodiment of the 2020 principle. And his uncomplicated faithfulness stands the test of time. Verse 6, so Jotham became mighty because he ordered his ways before Yahweh his God. Just a simple, straightforward, uncomplicated faithfulness that receives God's acclaim. Ah, but the people. Notice the last sentence of verse 2. But the people still followed corrupt practices. That ominous statement that just slides in in verse 2 prepares you for what is coming in chapter 28. The people still followed corrupt practices. For all of Jotham's quiet, consistent faithfulness, the people of God were not on board. Let me put it to you in a different way. They weren't ready for Jotham's faithfulness, but they were ready for Ahaz's faithlessness. They were not ready for Jotham's faithfulness, but they were good and ready for Ahaz's faithlessness. And so comes chapter 28, an unsophisticated faithlessness. You know, it's pretty clear as you read chapter 28 that Ahaz got away with murder. Figuratively and probably very literally. And so as you look at verse 1 through 4, notice that he follows the pattern. First thing up, he follows the pattern of the politically, socially, morally, theologically liberal branch of God's kingdom. And he did not do what was right in the eyes of Yahweh, but he walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Further, his moral compass, his moral compass was not in sync with God's true north. You may not know this, but your compass is supposed to be in sync with north. But there was a day when everybody wore wristwatches. There were sometimes, some of the metal was actually magnetized. And so as you're holding the compass in your hand, guess where that needle starts going instead of to the magnetic north? Where does it go? To the closest magnetic pool. And if it's your wristwatch, guess where you're going? Not where you plan to go. Well, Ahaz is like that. His moral compass is not in sync with God's true north. And so he incorporates, the rest of verse 2, he incorporates into Judah competitors, competitors to, God, to Yahweh. He even made metal images for the Baals. Further, he destroyed the future of a portion of his family just like all the rest of the people groups around the neighborhoods did. And he made offerings in the valley of the son of Hanam and burned his sons as an offering. 
according to the abominations of the nations that the Lord, that Yahweh, drove out before the people of Israel. Now that last line catches your attention. Because you remember, because we looked at Joshua just about a year and a half ago, or two years ago, and you remember that, that Israel coming into Canaan was not because Israel was really the more righteous. It was the fact that God was done with the Canaanites because of their multiple generational immorality. The sex trafficking, the incest, and all the other things that came with social approval for hundreds of years. And so Israel was actually God's instrument of judgment upon the Canaanites. And now that little statement says that Ahaz identifies himself with the damned, not with the delivered. He identifies himself with the doomed, not with the delivered. He did according to all the abominations of the nations whom the Lord cast out before Israel. Well, you already know the story then. Well, if you're going to act like them, then guess what's left for you? Right? And then he dove deep into the folk religion of his day, going backward into the territorial and animistic ways of his ancestors and his neighbors. Verse 4, And he sacrificed and made offerings on high, the high places and on the hills and under every green tree. It's a very antiseptic statement, or, or however you want to put that. But all of that is fertility religion. Ahaz is full on board with sex trafficking. Because that's what's going on in those places. He is all in. Think about how reprehensible that would be. This is how bad it is getting. And so then you come to verse 5 and following, and sure enough, the Lord's rigor, His rigor arrives on the scene. But always remember, before we go any deeper, that God's rigor is always meant to lead to God's restoration. God's rigor is always meant to lead to God's restoration. But if you want to ignore His restoration, if you want to turn your back on His restoration, then what is left to you? His rigor. His rigor. And so the Lord, Yahweh his God, gave him into the hand of the king of Syria. He was also given into the hand of the king of Israel. And his Military might and strength and forces were decimated in huge numbers. And so then the end of verse 6, and it was because they had forsaken the Lord, the God of their fathers. They, not just Ahaz, they had forsaken the Lord, the God of Israel, the God of their fathers. My friends... God's rigor is coming. For the wages of sin is death. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ to give an account of what we have done in the body, whether good or evil. The Lord's full-blown rigor is coming. You cannot wriggle your way out of it. And so knowing it, let it bring you to God's restoration. Yes, the wage of sin may be death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. Where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Let His coming rigor 
run you into His restoration. And God's restoration is full of life. It is full of liberty. It is full of love. You heard it in the assurance of pardon. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. Oh, dear friends, God's rigor is coming. Let it bring you to run to His restoration. Ah, but the people, the people, the people were on board with what Ahaz was doing. They were not ready for Jotham's faithfulness, but they were good and ready for Ahaz's faithlessness. Chapter 27, verse 2. And so things just keep getting worse and worse. But neither Ahaz nor the people are running to God's restoration. Neither Ahaz nor the people are running to God's health-giving prescription. And what's his health-giving prescription? 2 Chronicles 7, verse 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked way, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and heal their land, heal the kingdom. Instead of God's rigor bringing them to run to God's restoration, instead, what are they doing? Ahaz and the people. They are diving deeper and deeper and deeper into their pragmatic depravity. That's all verses 8 to 18 and beyond. Even when Ahaz tries to bribe the king of Assyria, the new geopolitical giant on the world's stage at the time, it all blows up in his face. And so verse 19 and 20, For Yahweh humbled Judah because of Ahaz, king of Israel, for he had made Judah. I'm going to come back to that phrase in a second. He made Judah act sinfully and had been very unfaithful to Yahweh. And so Tiglath-Pilitzer, king of Assyria, came against him and afflicted him instead of strengthening him. Now how in the world did Ahaz make Judah sin? That sounds to me like they weren't on board. No, Bubba. They were on board. How does the devil make you sin? Oh, now we're going to go from preaching to meddling, y'all. How does the devil make you sin? Does he come in and arm wrestle you down and tie you down and force you to do something you don't want to do? No. He's your cheerleader. You know you really want to do it. It's okay. Don't nobody know the difference, y'all. Come on in. Water feels fine. He's your cheerleader. He's not your master. He doesn't force you. You do it on your own. Ahaz did the same thing. He didn't force Judah to sin more deeply. They were already doing it. They were already on board. They were not on board with Jotham's faithfulness, but they were full hog on board with Ahaz's faithlessness. And so how he made them do it, probably enticing them, probably making it easier for them to get by with it, Right? That's how he made them do it, because they were already headed in that direction. They were already headed in that direction. And so, my friends, everything keeps going from bad to worse to stinky bad. But instead of hitting the pause button 
and reassessing their direction, it gets worse. Verse 22, in the time of his distress, he became yet more faithless to the Lord, this King Ahaz. He even starts really worshiping power, which is most of what he's after anyways, by worshiping the gods of Syria that had defeated him. And yet, that last statement of verse 23, but they were the ruin, the gods of the Syrians were the ruin of him and of all Israel. Instead of God's rigor becoming the moment to return to God's restoration, Ahaz, notice, strikes out against Yahweh. He strikes out against the Lord. How? By shutting down God's temple. I will not have this God tell me what to do, and I will not have him direct me, and I will not have him annoy me any longer. Business closed. That's what he does. And then he finances, verse 25, he finances, using probably lots of government largesse, whatever was left in the land, and he promotes his own version of coexist and spiritual multiculturalism. In every city of Judah, he made high places to make offerings to other gods, provoking to anger Yahweh, the God of his fathers. And so then Ahaz's days, his dark tale ends without any appreciation. And they did not bring him to the tombs of the kings of Israel. He had no honor. He lived with no honor. And he received no honor in his death. Now my friends, when you recall chapter 27 verse 2. In the midst of Jotham's faithfulness, yet the people stayed addicted to, attached to. The corrupt practices. When you take chapter 27, verse 2, and you start walking through Ahaz's downward direction with the people's approval, then there's something that Christopher Wright once wrote that now makes clearer sense. And this is the quotation that's in your sermon notes. And if, you, if you would, just turn on the back of your sermon notes, you'll see it. He wrote this in a book called Here Are Your Gods, Faithful Discipleship in Idolatrous Times. He wrote this in 2020. He's an Old Testament scholar. Quote, you get the government that mirrors the gods you worship. You get the government that mirror the gods that you worship. And that's what you see happening in chapter 27 and 22 of 2 Chronicles. Now, I would qualify Christopher Wright's statement. And I would say, you know, because God is good and because God is gracious, it's not automatic, thank the Lord. But often, we do get the government that mirrors the gods that we worship. And so the people got the government, got a government that resonated and harmonized with what they worshipped. Chapter 28. Oh, people of God. O oh, people of the United States of America, hear me if you will. For us to turn away from the life-giving, liberty-giving, love-giving God is to turn toward the life-snuffing, liberty-stealing, love-soiling gods and ways. 
we often get the government that reflects the gods that we worship. I wish that was on every one of your voter registration cards. To remember that, when we go for elections, we often get the, God, the government that mirrors the gods that we worship. And yet, my friends, here in chapter 27 and 28, especially 28, there's a surprising glimmer in some unlooked-for neighborliness. And it's verses 8 through 15. So follow me. I'm going to read chapter 28, 8 through 15 very quickly. Okay, I'm a preacher, so quickly means different for me than you. But we're going to try here. Here's an example of how Judah, Ahaz, and his people were defeated. Here's an illustration. The men of Israel took captive 200,000 of their relatives, women, sons, and daughters. They also took much spoil from them and brought the spoil to Samaria. Samaria is the capital city of the northern kingdom. They brought them to Samaria. But a prophet of, of Yahweh, of the Lord, was there whose name was Oded. And he went out to meet the army that came to Samaria. And he said to them, Behold, because Yahweh, the God of your fathers, was angry with Judah, and he, he gave them into your hand, but you have killed them in a rage that has reached up to heaven. And now you intend to subjugate the people of Judah and Jerusalem, male and female, as your slaves? Have you not sins of your own against Yahweh, your God? Now hear me. And send back the captives from your relatives whom you have taken for the fierce wrath of Yahweh is upon you. And then starting in verse 12, certain of the leaders of Samaria rise up and they are enlisted by name, which is very unusual for the chronicler or the historian to do. He lists these leaders by name. You can see the men of Ephraim, Azariah, Barakiah, and so forth. And they say to the military forces that's coming back with these captives, they say, uh, no, we're going to side with God and his word. You cannot bring them in here as captives. And so then, verse 14, So the armed men left the captives and the spoil before the princes and all the assembly. And the men who have been mentioned by name, back up at verse 12, rose and took the captives. Now remember, these are men of Samaria. That means these are Samaritans. Now, Samaritan means different things in different seasons, just like oaky. Anybody remember what the word oaky meant in 1930? It was not a happy term. You could be an oaky from Muskogee, but the Californians thought that was as bad as the N-word. But now we're proud to be oaky. So you understand oaky means people from Oklahoma, but once it had derisive, you got it? Okay. So these are Samaritans. These are Samaritans. And what do these Samaritans do then? So the men who had been mentioned by name rose and they took the captives and with the spoil they clothed all who were naked among them. They clothed them, gave them sandals, provided them with food and drink and anointed them. At least it was with oil, potentially wine for an antiseptic if that was needed. But they anointed them and carrying all the feeble among them on donkeys and brought them to their kinsfolk at Jericho the city of Palms, and then they returned to Samaria. I hope you were listening to that historical tale. So first off, this season of time that we're looking at here, when Ahaz was reigning over Judah, was the last gasp 
of the northern realm of God's kingdom. As Tiglath-Pileser comes in from the north, that means he is coming in and devastating the northern tribes that uh, the the, the northern tribes of Israel. He's devastating them. This, so this is around 722, 721 B.C. And he's going to decommission Israel. It will no longer be a nation state and he will haul those people away. This is the last final gasping breaths of the northern kingdom. And it's in these final gasping breaths that there surfaces some unlooked for neighborliness. First off, notice that the northern realm is God's instrument of punishment upon the south. And so they did what God wanted as a tool of discipline. They did attack and capture the southern folks, and now they bring them to Samaria, the capital. So the first surprise comes out here. In an environment where nobody is listening to the Lord. Right? Nobody is listening to the word of the Lord. The northern region had long ago gotten rid of God's word and God's prophets, most of them and refused to listen for the last couple of hundred years. Now the southern realm of God's kingdom has been not listening to the Lord all along. And it's into this environment where nobody is listening to God, where nobody is giving the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob the time of day, when nobody is seeking God, suddenly, surprise, that faithless, progressive, liberal realm of God's kingdom hears God and responds rightly. Oded, the prophet of the Lord, comes and he speaks and he rebukes and he challenges. And what do these liberal progressives do? They submit to God's righteous word. They hear the word of the Lord and respond correctly which puts the South to shame in this story. And so then these Samaritans, verse 8, 9, and 15, they're all they're Samaritans. They take the people of Judah who have been beaten and robbed and stripped, and what do they do with them? They clothe all who were naked, giving them sandals and food. They anoint them with at least, which at least means with oil, they carry the feeble on their animals upon their donkeys. And they bring them to the city, Jericho. Hmm, did that sound familiar? Hmm. Not only is this final scene in the final days of the northern realm, in and of itself, a surprised, unlooked-for neighborliness, but our Lord Jesus seems to very much be drawing this story in as he tells the story we've come to know as the tale of the Good Samaritan. There are so many rich connections between this historical event and the tale that Jesus tells to push back on the lawyer who was trying to test him and trying to justify himself. And if our Lord is allowing this true historical episode to be the backstory of the Good Samaritan. Imagine the sting that the listeners would have felt in their hearts. Probably sharper than Africanized honeybees stinging you. That happened when we were on camping and I was the victim. And it hurt like the devil. Probably stung them down, down deep. 
Sometimes, put it very simply, sometimes the politically, morally, theologically, socially liberal people of God's realm act far more like God's faithful believers than the supposed faithful. Sometimes those who should be on the outs act more like they're on the ends than the faithful, kind of like the priest and the Levite. Right? It's an unlooked-for neighborliness that shows what grace does, how it surprises the socks off of you. And that episode should make us stop, and in the words of my grandma, should cause us to get off our high horse. Did anybody else's grandma ever say that? Thank you. Should get off our high horse, let the air out of our religious egos. God used people like this and brought grace to bear. And it's a shock. And he can still do it today. Let's pray. Oh Lord our God, we pray that you would have mercy upon us but, oh dear God, that you would have mercy upon our country. May we not get the government that we deserve. May we not get a government that mirrors the gods we worship if we're worshiping wrong. May we not be like the people of chapter 27 and 28 who were not ready for faithful Jotham, but were full on ready for faithless Ahaz. Lord God, have mercy upon us sinners. And help us, Lord, as we think back through this story that feels so much like Jesus' story, the Good Samaritan. To make sure that we're not riding our high horse, thinking ourselves more better than everybody else. Ah, but for the grace of God, there go I. May we be like these northern progressive liberal people in the story who hear you and submit to you. In Jesus' name, amen.